Just a little friendly reminder out there to all you listeners, make sure to subscribe to the National Land Realty Podcast. No matter what platform you use, there is a subscribe button. Make sure to click that. That's how we measure our success and measure the value that we bring to the table. Welcome to episode number 78 for the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Benjamin Franklin once stated, Our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable, but in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Yes, it's everybody's favorite time of year. No, not COVID season, which is something I'm getting over right now, explains the voice. No, it's tax season. And today, we're going to discuss how these certainties play into your land strategy as well as your life planning. Clint Flowers is a managing broker for National Land Realty and happens to be one of the most successful land real estate professionals in the United States over the last decade. Helping clients understand taxes and land ownership strategies is a huge part of his success. And he's here today to help you understand how some of these strategies work. Now sit back and enjoy. I am sitting here with Clint Flowers out of Mobile, Alabama. And I had to start that over because I screwed it up once already. So uh, we're, gonna, we're we're doing this again. Uh, we got it right this time. Clint is is the top selling agent out of our company for I'm not even gonna give you a, a number of years, man. Like you, you're the OG as far as as far as sales go. And, uh, and it looks like the, like the, you're at the top of the you're up there again. I'm not gonna say whether whether you're at the top top or not, but I, I think you're in range. Um, you've been doing this for a long time and you got a lot of experience and you've, you've started, I mean, I'm not going to say started, but a majority of what you work with are extremely high value, extremely luxurious properties throughout Alabama. Uh, today we're talking about taxes and, and land. And this is a topic I've, I'm going to give you the floor here and, and tell us a little bit about your background and how you got here. But this is something that you work with day in and day out. And you got a lot of insights here, but just for those of you that are not familiar with, with Clint, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get here? How did you get into land in the first place and, and sort of, you know, what you work with? Well, I've been doing this 20 years as of December and I grew up in it. My dad's a consultant forester. I uh, had no intention of doing this uh, originally because I grew up working in the woods and, and did all the grunt work that uh, made me realize that, uh, I don't want to be doing that stuff day in and day out. I'd like to get a good education, a good job, which I think was my dad's intention because I was working for every farmer surveyor, anybody he could find to get me employed under uh, and and sweat and build calluses. Uh, but then as I got out of school, uh, just happened to have a real estate license because I had enough uh, ed- extra education hours to, to get one, uh, had done tech support for the business school and was, uh, as my dad and I often do communicate through arguing was fussing at him for, uh, not having a website. And he, he was doing a little bit of land selling here and there and did some wholesale deals and, um, was, was telling him he needed to be doing more of this. And, and his usual method was, was okay. Then show me. So, uh, I, I temporarily started a little website, um, or intended to be temporarily for him and, uh, ended up, you know, in, in a way to try to buy my wife an engagement ring and, and move up to Birmingham to become the big banker. I had all these plans to be, uh, 
closed a few deals and I realized that, uh, I loved it and I was hooked and it went from there. Uh, it, it grew, was independent for 13 years, ended up merging my business, my company in with national land in uh, 2015. And we've built it out from there. I was going to say that I, I love stories like that. Cause I laugh about it. I, I grew up in a small town and I, I was really happy that like my family worked in ag and I got a chance to, to grow up working in a feed mill and, and did tough jobs. I'm really glad I did tough jobs to realize how much I want soft hands. <laughs> Yeah. You try to, you, you, you don't want to have them too soft where nobody respects you, but you still, right. you know, but at the same time, you still don't want to be hunched over with a cane at the end of the day either. Yeah. Yeah. I've got enough joint damage as it is. I did. I need yeah. what I got. No, I, I get that completely. Um, so yeah, so we're, we're talking about, to, and it's the perfect time of year to have this conversation is we're, we're in tax season. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to just ask you up front, you know, in terms of land, how do we define a tax shelter? Well, there's a lot of vehicles uh, for that with land. Uh, the beauty of it with most of them is it doesn't matter what size parcel you own. You don't have to own a large luxurious track, like you mentioned, to enjoy those. Uh, and that's my favorite part about them in relation to land. And that's uh, really what helped me or, or piqued my interest in that because, uh, you know, we all have to pay taxes in some way. And but the more just like anything else, the more money you keep, you can the more money you make. I mean, just to, just to keep it simple. So if you can shelter your income in a way that yields you more money out of the same sales price, uh, then it's a win-win. And there are very simple and safe vehicles to do that. And of course those evolve every year or every few years as new tax bills come out. Uh, but you know, but there's just a, a lot of great tools out there for landowners of every size. Yeah. And, and, uh, and there's, there's terminology that we're going to be using and, and one, you know, we, we just said it is tax shelter and the other one is tax deferment. And, and there, there are multiple uses for those, but the, the one thing I wanted to throw out here and we meant to do that at the beginning is as a disclaimer on any of this conversation is any of, any of you listening, you're all going to have unique circumstances and you're all going to have unique situations, unique incomes, unique land models, you want to talk to an accountant. You want to get those people on board for your specific circumstance. And, and you want to be sure to take what we're saying as advice in general, not specific to you. And it's, a, you're going to hear the same disclaimer on anything that you listen to financially. We have to say it fiduciary responsibility dictates that we do uh, just because we're talking about it doesn't mean you go out and do it right now. So want to make sure we take care of that. I, I, I didn't throw that out on the front side of this, but I wanted to make sure we said it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not a tax professional. I'm basically just I'm giving stories of what I've done and what I've seen done with clients and anything I do, I've got a, you know, true tax professionals, you know, behind me that, that double check everything, make sure we're doing it right. Yep. Um, so let's, let's talk about land specifically. Do you view it as, as a, cause these terms get thrown out with land and when it comes to taxes and when it comes to investing, do you view it as, as a hedge or an investment? Both. If you do it right. Um, they're, they're typically a, a hedge for inflation. Uh, it's, it's a very typically, unless you're in a speculative environment where you've got transitional land, you know, around a big city, uh, your land is, is a slow way to build a lot of wealth, uh, because you do have very steady appreciation in land, but then also you've got things like timber that are just growing, that get, 
you know, they, they have more value through their actual weight each year as that imp- increases. And, you know, those trees or whatever it is you're growing, they grow despite whatever cable news says. It's not like a, a stock that, that or you know, stock market in general that, that moves, um, you know, sporadically and erratically really based on what is going on in the political environment. Perfect. And so when we're talking about, and, you know, we're, when you're talking about investing or you're even talking about hedging, you're talking about a gain on value. And anytime you have a gain on value, you're going to encounter taxes. That's just the nature of things. And, you know, they call it capital gains. You make money, you got to pay the pay the tax, man. It's unavoidable death and taxes. Right. But there's ways to kick the can down the road or move things around to to get more liquidity in your hands or to defer those gains the tax or the, to defer the taxes on those gains. So what are the, some of the more obvious ways to defer taxes on land? Well, there is a lot of times it's not necessarily on the land. You can actually use your land as a vehicle to defer your taxes from other income. And that's where it really gets fun for me because, um, a lot of people are, they're not buying the land to shelter taxes. They just find out that that's a very fruitful dividend of land ownership. And so when we have those conversations that, you know, the light bulb goes off and said, Holy cow, you know, I can buy a tractor. I can buy a UTV. I can buy a truck and I can buy, you know, uh, my mileage to and from the property. All those things are tax deductible. Uh, and right now they're tax deductible. Um, I think it's 60% this year, but with the new act, they're going to retroact that most likely to 100%. So you can write off hundred percent of those things, the year of the uh, expense, uh, dozer work, culverts, gates, fences, all of those things can be uh, deducted from your taxes or add back to your basis. Uh, and, and the, and, and the reason that matters is if you write it off your taxes, you capitalize that expense this year, it comes off your taxable income. Now, if you add it back, there's things that you can add back to your cost basis. They benefit you when you sell the property. So it reduces your capital gain. So the main thing is understand what your strategy is and not do it haphazardly and, you know, uh, have a plan, uh, really dig down and get educated, uh, figure out what those benefits are and then start applying that. Um, you know, long-term you can build a lot of wealth inside your estate with land. Um, and then, uh, if you do involve yourself in 1031 exchanges, don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. You can actually push those all the way down. Uh, and where you really do uh, skip taxes on all of those capital gains, the, the trick to that is you have to die. Uh, so it's <laughs> that so one little thing. Uh, so your heirs get a step up in basis. So you never had to pay taxes on all those capital gains. Uh, but again, it's all about strategy and structure and, and really understanding what your goals are. Right, right. So, I mean, it's it, in, in a life plan, death is part of that plan. And if yeah. you incorporated that in what you want to achieve, because everyone's trying to achieve something. If you are trying to set up heirs and set them up with what you have, then that bec- your death becomes part of that plan. You do have to, it's an unfortunate part of the plan, but it's something, you know, like death and taxes, right? It's, it's something that we all have to have a plan for. Same reason we have insurance, right? Yep, that's right. And, and there's things like um, a really common one that people don't understand is timber income being um, non-taxable but, uh, until you cut out your basis. So 
you can have uh, there's depletable basis in real estate uh, and especially in timberland where if you bought a track for two thousand dollars an acre and it's got a thousand dollars an acre in the land and a thousand dollars acre in timber then you can cut off a thousand dollars an acre in timber tax-free because all you did was recover that capital you took a thousand dollars in trees and turned it to a thousand dollars in cash there was no capital gain you know if you want to think of it like converting a liquid to a gas it's still the same thing uh, but if you take that same place and let's say it's a, a farm and you've got cash rent cash rent is treated like ordinary income so if you're in the top tax bracket you're going to pay 37 percent on that money where if it was timber income where you were depleting basis you'd pay zero so that's 37 cents less of the same dollar that you'd be getting from a cash rent versus timber income with depletable basis and there's things like that throughout ownership that you, if you don't understand, could cost you some, you know, significant returns over time. So if you go in making the assumption that, that it's going to function as it does with a timber investment, but you're getting cash rent that could then you, if you haven't planned appropriately, or you've talked to the wrong accountant, right? Somebody who's experienced and they don't know the specific areas. What are the, some of the areas that you can get it? Like, so you just spoke just to a a pretty blatant trouble spot where somebody hasn't really, what are some of the other situations that you've seen where like, if you don't have a plan in place and you haven't talked to the right mind that you could end up in trouble? They it's usually, so the most common one I see is they don't understand what I just said about the, uh, the basis depletion in timber and they're really their accountant doesn't and their accountant instructs them to pay taxes on that income. They didn't have to. And I don't know if you've ever tried to get money back from the IRS, but it's not real easy. Um, so it's a lot better to, to do it right on the front end. Uh, the, the other thing is just not planning well um, from an income standpoint or an estate standpoint. And you you wake up one day and you're in this really bad position where you're going to get nailed with a lot of estate taxes, where if you would um, dealt with a true estate professional over the years, they could have guided you. Uh, you know, maybe it was buying your land through your self-directed IRA, uh, setting up a, a limited family partnership, all kind of things that you could have done to help either defer or avoid some of those taxes, um, in a, in the right way. Uh, but, but you didn't do that. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you could be forced to sell the property or forced to pay 50% of its value in, in taxes or, or, you know, sometimes more, it just depends. So strategically, what are some of the strategies that people use, right? So like you have, you have buy and, and just, I'm going to put it like any investment, you know, like a buy and hold strategy. You've got some people that buy land just to produce income from say an, an agricultural means, right? Like you're, you're selling the cattle and that's your income or like, tell me some of the things and, and, or you're buying land and then selling it later for a profit. Talk to me about some of those because I want to. I'm obviously leading the conversation into what happens when you sell land and and how that tax strategy works as well. Um, so just kind of take us from a 101 level because I want to speak to those that are interested in land and and you know it's there's going to be people that already own land that know this stuff, but then I want to get to a higher level as we kind of go along. So the the most common thing I see um, that again it, it's similar where if you've got the wrong tax professional uh, that, that advises you incorrectly could cost you a lot of money. But a lot of time people just misunderstand that they've inherited property. They have technically have zero dollars in it, but because you get a step up in basis when you inherit that land, assuming you took, you get it in a conventional method, like a wheel, then you step up your basis, your cost basis steps up to current market value. And 
So you only owe taxes on the amount over that value. So if if the appraisal, estate appraisal says it was worth $2,000 an acre and you sell it for $2,100 an acre, then you owe taxes on $100 an acre. But that's it. Uh, a lot of people, because they don't have anything in it, misunderstand that and think they've got to pay taxes on the entire $2,100 an acre. And that affects how they negotiate. It affects how they deal with us as their representation. So I try to be direct in those communications and make sure that I understand how they got here so that I can advise them that they need to to figure that out. Like, what is your basis? Uh, what is your capital gain going to be? Because if you think that you're going to owe more taxes than you actually will, then that affects what you can afford to take for the property or that you're willing to take for the property. And oftentimes, if you're if you don't know that, you'll drag out the sale, you'll try to negotiate too high and you'll end up losing the sale completely or at least a lot of time value on money that you could have had in a more liquid investment of your choice or a different piece of real estate. That's a really, really good point. Um, when when somebody is is going into a sale, what are some of the options of sale that, that when you incorporate taxes? So you just spoke to, you've inherited land. What about, you know, like, specifically going into like 1031 exchanges or looking at DSTs or things like that. How do those vehicles work? So 1031 exchanges, you, you defer taxes uh, and you can do those three different ways. There's forward reverses uh, and another where you have, you can do unlimited properties. So I think it's to double the cost, the price of what you're selling. Most people don't use that one because the math gets a little complicated. We usually do forward or reverse. Uh, and what that means is, and I'm just going to use the standard forward one in this example, you sell a piece of property, you've got a capital gain, you intend to buy other like kind real estate. That does not mean it has to be land. That just means it has to be investment real estate. It can be a beach house, uh, apartment complex, an investment home. Cannot be a personal home, but it can be an investment home. Um, so rather than take that money, pay taxes on it, and then buy that thing, you can employ a 1031 exchange, identify again, the normal way up to three properties within 45 days from that closing, uh, buy one or all three of those properties with your proceeds and all of your capital gain goes forward into those and you will owe no taxes for now. You, it's a deferment. Um, and again, that's the example I used earlier, where if you do that through your entire life, or you never sell that property. When you die, your heirs get it and they get a step up in basis of current market value and they won't owe any taxes. So you, in that case, you really did skip the tax man. I was, you, you, that's where I wanted to lead you to is the, uh, the death strategy is in there too. It's like, there's, there's a really yeah. good strategy in this, but it involves you kicking the can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So don't make your wife too mad. She might employ it too early. Uh, <laughs> but you know, there's another thing to remember in that is, is, your basis from the original sale moves forward in the exchange. So you're, if you got, if you want to deplete basis or you want to involve depreciation, um, whether it's through bonus depreciation, like we have right now through a cost segregation study, anything like that, you do have less cost basis because you moved it all forward rather than, with that sale forward rather than paying cash because cash would have gotten you a full cost basis. So there's things that you need to remember in that too, that it, that it may affect you, but usually the tax savings benefit exceeds the benefit of doing those things had you paid cash or either it would have been a lateral move. So it's a lot easier to just 
the 1031 exchange. And then with a 1031 exchange, if you've got debt on the property you're selling, you have to take that same amount of debt forward at an equal or greater amount. So you can't pay off the debt and then take the rest. The, the portion you pay off the debt with is considered what's called boot money, and then it'll get taxed as a capital gain. So it, um, there's things like that, little nuances you've got to remember in, in exchanges. Um, you know, and there's other fantastic tools like, um, you know, conservation easements, um, the bonus depreciation that I mentioned, um, with, you want me to slide right into those Mac or we got, Man, a- let's, I, I like, I, I like the workaround into, into conservation right. easements there. I think that's a good, a good route. Okay. So well, conservation easements, the ones that we deal with, um, and I'm, I'm on the board of an accredited land trust. I think we've got over a hundred thousand acres under easement now. And then I, we, we deal with them a lot on the brokerage side. Um, I help people kind of construct them in a way that will help them without impeding their use, their intended use of their property. Uh, meaning that the, if, if somebody's going to give up the right to create a commercial gravel pit on a piece of property that they never intended to harvest gravel on to begin with, then what are they out? Nothing. So little things like that, but the way that that works in a nutshell is you buy a property that has some higher and better use, whether it's gravel, uh, division, um, long-term timber harvest, uh, things like that, uh, or it can be farming related and you choose to donate certain rights, not every right to the benefit of a land trust. And the land trust is not the IRS land trust. Like in our example is a people, a board of people like me who like responsible self-driven conservation, not dictated conservation. And, um, and they, they preserve that it's a charity. It's 501 C three. And you, most of the time we're dealing with what's called a working forest easement to where you can still harvest timber. You can still manage timber. You just agree not to clear cut the place from one end to the next, which most people again, aren't going to do that anyway. Uh, they're not going to do any subsurface mining, which again, weren't going to do that anyway. And they won't overly divide it. Um, division for, you know, in a few, two or three times for family members and things like that is okay. Uh, they don't want you putting it in a subdivision, but they do give you building envelopes that you can do whatever you want to in of usually 10 to 40 acres in size. So you can go in and put camps and barns and all that stuff in without any concern. Uh, and that's it. And typically in doing that, uh, we've get enough tax shelter to pay for property for people. Um, that's not the only intent, but it is definitely a benefit of it. So if I can, show you how to pay for your property by agreeing to not do things you weren't going to do anyway. How does that sound? And so far I've not had anybody say no. Uh, and we have been successful on every single one. Uh, most of them, we cover hundred percent of the purchase price in shelter and you've got up to 16 years to do that, to use all of that. Uh, you've got an annual use limit of 50% of your adjusted gross income. Um, the ones that didn't cover hundred percent, they were very close, but again, it didn't impede with managing timber. It didn't impede with hunting, didn't impede with recreational use of any kind. So people love them and they're a great tool. And then when it does come time for you to, to take that, that next step and, and you start, you know, going six feet under the other benefit of that is that same piece of property is now inside of your estate. And because of the easement, it can, um, reduce the value of your estate because of the easement. 
Now, it doesn't necessarily reduce the value in a retail sense if you ever want to sell. If you make them overly restrictive, they can. But if you only do what I described earlier, we've never seen a drop in value. I own a piece of property with an easement on it that had an easement on it when I bought it. Uh, I've done an easement myself on my own property uh, on a different track. Uh, so I've got a lot of experience with those. Something I, something I wanted to ask you is, it, you know, there is sort of an interpretation on conservation easements. And I think, I think, you know, where I'm already headed is a lot of landowners look at a, at a conservation easements as I think a lot of interpret, interpret it as a sort of government oversight is yeah. how I think a lot of people view it. Like, Oh, I'm not going to give the federal government control of my land. And, or you're giving up total control. As soon as you do a conservation easement, it's like, oh, now I'm giving people control of my land. I can never use it again. I can just look at it and I can maybe ride around on it on my horse or like go around on a side by side and that's it. And it's gone when I'm dead. Is yeah. that, I think that that's a lot of people interpret it that way. I wondered if you could kind of like talk to that. So the, the oversight is from the land trust. And which you, there's a lot of them out there. Uh, there's good ones, bad ones. If you ever read stories about people getting in trouble for conservation easements, they are typically dealing with a bad one and doing what's called a syndicated conservation easement, which is not what I'm talking about. The way I'm talking about doing it is the way they were intended. Not a syndicated easements are done for a profit, usually dealing with people who've never set foot on the property or seen it. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, as far as the restrictions go, you dictate what those restrictions will be. So the, like I said, the, the way we typically design them is very minimal in comparison to what the intent of the owner is. So we're not going to say do anything that really impedes with, with anything they weren't going to do anyway. But there are some out there that I have read that not that we took that um, were so restrictive, they made it hard to do anything but park at the gate and walk in. So if you're going to do a conservation easement, be careful and make sure you're conscious of what you're donating and don't just focus on the big return coming from the tax shelter because you may lose your ability to sell the property for a retail value. So you've really washed out all the tax benefit because you lost it on the, the value of the property. So you, you want to find a healthy balance. And you were speaking to the the value lost or gained on conservation easements. Is that typically related to the transferability or the use of that property that can reduce the value or or, or keep it level? How does how does that sort of function? Yeah. So the again, the way we typically do them and I help clients with is we're all we're really doing is locking in the current use. So if it's timberland for hunting or ag land with hunting, and that's what we're locking it in. We're not taking a development track on the beach that's worth a hundred thousand dollars an acre and and locking it down to where it can only grow pine trees. That is a significant loss in value if you did that. Uh, and, and that's great if you do that for the benefit of the world, but you are going to lose money when you do that. If you do it with a rural piece of property that's already priced as such, and you lock in these values, uh, lock in, excuse me, lock in the current use, then your value range is going to stay the same, or at least in anything we've seen from a sales standpoint. Um, but you, as long as you don't over restrict it, just like anything else, if, if, you know, if you go into a neighborhood and, and buy into one that's got an HOA that won't hardly let you go outside without shoes on, without getting a fine, you don't want to be there. You're going to be unhappy. It's going to be hard to sell. Same concept with a conservation easement, but there is no major oversight. Uh, usually it's up to the land trust, but at a maximum, they're coming out once a year and just kind of scheduled with you. And they, you know, a biologist runs out and goes, yep. He didn't set a bomb off out here. Looks good. See you next year. Uh, but others, they don't come out for three years. They check everything by, you know, really um, 
intensively updated uh, aerial imagery that's out there now. So they don't even come on site. So there it's just about doing it right and dealing with the right people. So that brings up a really good point is how do you vet to see if you're working with the right people? You talked about how some of them like a syndicated land trust mm-hmm. will work for a profit. In that case, you have an entirely different tax basis than you would if you had just a, a conservation easement. Right. Um, so yeah. how do you, how do you vet that? How do you figure out if you're getting, if you're getting hosed? <laughs> So the the easiest thing to do is check that you're doing. If you can can work with an accredited land trust, they've got certain guidelines they've got to meet to get, and it's hard to get that designation. And typically they're not going to deal with anything unscrupulous, no syndicated easements, nothing even like that because they don't want to risk their accredited status. Um, you can find those through the land trust Alliance. Uh, just Google their website and they actually house uh, a lot of, excellent information to learn about conservation easements in general, but then also help you find a land trust that aligns with your goals. Perfect. What are some of the ways, you know, we're talking about some of the vehicles that people can utilize to, to save on taxes. Actually, no, let me step back a bit. Uh, you were talking about, uh, we're talking about timber gain. Where was, where were we on that? Where am I blanking? We were headed in a direction. I think I steered us in a different direction. Uh, I'm not going to go there. Um, bonus appreciation. Bonus appreciation. That's where that is yeah. where I was hunting for. No, that's you're on it way more than I am. I'm still deep dealing with COVID brain here. Well, though I get it, man. It's um, uh, I feel like that fog has never left in some ways. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to use that uh, as an excuse until I'm like 80. <laughs> yeah, uh, forget my wife's birthday. Oh, it's the COVID. It's the COVID. Uh, so. Um, a lot of people that are buying these improved tracks, whether it's a lodge or, or fencing or silos, whatever it is in your part of the country, it, you know, it could be farming related improvements to recreational things. Um, they depreciate the same way that your home depreciates, your refrigerator depreciates everything. Uh, and depreciation scales in real estate are either residential, which is a 27 and a half year scale or they're commercial on a 39 year scale. And what that means is, uh, every depreciable item on your property depreciates at that rate each year. So one thirty ninth of its value. Well, bonus depreciation that came out inside the Trump tax bill, uh, allowed you to speed that up to where the actual depreciation happens. Like it, it really does in life. Like your, your plugins in your house don't last 39 years. Your fridge doesn't last 39 years, your air conditioner, all those things that actually have a useful life of a much smaller amount of years, it pushes all of that depreciation into a shorter range. So you can write much of that off in one, in the first year of ownership up to about the fifth year, but usually in that first three. So what we've seen is you can, depending on the type of property we're talking about, you can also recruit um, up to about a third to 40% of your purchase price, depending on how much is in those improvements through bonus depreciation uh, in the first year. So that one thing we didn't touch on on easements is to get the full value of them. You've got to own them a year and a day to get two and a half times the purchase price and donation value, which is synonymous with tax deduction. And then after three years, there is no limit on that ceiling and two and a half times is they use that number because that's actually, if you're in the top tax bracket around what it takes to pay for the property entirely. So that's important to remember, but what that, the, for this, point right here remember that for a year and a day you don't get that shelter 
So the way that you can get shelter immediately is through bonus depreciation. So now you've got a really large chunk of first year deduction, and then you participate in an easement and you've got, now you've got a, a up to 16 year deduction from that. So you can actually pay for the property and more. And again, you've got to have the depreciable things, but more times than not, if you're buying this kind of property, it's going to have them. So it that's massive. And the beauty of that is it offsets other income. So if you've got a job that's producing a lot of um, taxable income, uh, high salary, high dividends, whatever the case may be, it can offset that to where it really doesn't affect the land at all, but it does help you shelter taxes over there. Um, Depreciation methods do reduce your cost basis. So if you did sell the property immediately after that, you would have a higher capital gain because you've depreciated it back. But conservation easements don't reduce your basis, and a lot of people don't understand that. So you can actually get the full value out, get a, a actual tax credit, is what it comes out to, for equal or greater than you paid for the property, uh, then regardless of bonus depreciation. And then when you sell the property, your cost basis is still the same. So you still don't have any capital gain except for the amount that you sell it for more than you paid for it. And so you've, if you did it right, you've actually doubled your money, uh, if not more. Uh, and again, these things don't happen overnight, but if you manage it right over the years, that's how this works. And we've done it for people and it has been a fantastic tool. And a lot of times clients come in and say, you know, they don't understand conservation easements or bonus depreciation. They've kind of heard about them on the news and usually only the bad things that, that where people abuse these things. But once we show them how to do it, you know, they're in. And then once we finish it, they go, that was great. Can we do another? Uh, and, and, you know, we do this as often as we can over the years. So they're just, they're fantastic tools that most people don't even don't know about at all, or they've only heard the the scary stories. I was going to say some of this, some of this people look at is like, Oh, is this a loophole? It's like, no, this is actually how they're set up. They're, it, it's, it, it's a conservation easement running as intended, as opposed to, to some of the things, like you said, that you can hear about. Um, what are some of the things where people can kind of get into hot water? Like what are, what are some of the things that, that, that people can step into where, you know, they thought they were getting into something good and they don't. Uh, again, it's, it's dealing with the wrong group. Um, you've hired a, a bad appraiser. He abuse, he pushes the multiple too much. Uh, and, and, but it comes, all that stuff comes back to land in your lap later. So you say, Oh, I'm, you know, I got this guy. He's really cheap. He just started this land trust is great. You know, and, and you get all the benefits of, of their lack of experience. Um, and, and, you know, those, those chickens come home to roost, I guess you'd say. Uh, and what can happen is in a conservation easement example, the restrictions stay, but you lose all of your tax shelter. Uh, so that's an extreme. What usually happens is you have to go in and negotiate your tax shelter down to a more reasonable, applicable rate, because, you know, there's examples where people came in, did a subsurface valuation for granite gravel, whatever the case may be, oil, uh, and said, this property is, they only owned it a year in a day. They're going to record the easement, but now it appraises for 16, 18, 20 times what they paid for it. Uh, and you know, let's be honest, there's, there's a lot of people in this world who would have realized that Delta and bought that property. You're not the only one that knew that. So, you know, you're going to come under scrutiny or if you come under scrutiny, you've got to sit there and defend to the IRS how you were so smart that you 
bought this piece of property and it was immediately worth 20 times what you paid for it. That's pretty hard to defend. Um, so that's that two and a half times range is a lot more normal, reasonable, and much less likely to get reviewed in any way. What are some of the, the, the tax advantages that people can utilize? Cause we've talked, you know, we've talked 1031s, we've talked about bonus depreciation. We've talked about conservation easements. What are some more subtle tax strategies that people probably don't realize they can take advantage of with their land? Uh, the, probably the most simple one is that you can write off your mileage to and from your property. And, you know, a lot of times people think they've got to go start a company to be a farmer of tree farmer or any other kind of farmer of any kind to have these deductions. And you don't, you can get them just when you own property in your name, um, you know, it works the same as an, as a corporation. Uh, now what kind of corporation matters because what you don't want to do is buy real estate that you ever intend to sell inside of a S corp or a C corp because it causes double taxation, uh, on, on sales. So usually if you're going to go into a company, unless you're going to run it as a true business where you've got salaried employees or things like that, if it's just an ownership strategy, uh, then you want to use an LLC, uh, so it limits liability, but the tax structure of owning it yourself stays the same. It's just called a pass-through entity. And, you know, so, but you don't have to do that. You know, so just taking it in your name, you get the same tax benefits. You can write off your mileage. You can write off your equipment. Uh, you can write off any nominal improvements. You don't have to get into the big strategies of bonus depreciation or conservation easements. There's normal day-to-day -day activities that you can write off your taxes uh, that people just don't realize. That's great advice. Um, when you're talking, when you're talking about 1031s, one thing I wanted to ask you too is DSTs. Tell me the just brief little difference between DSTs and 1031s and sort of how they're, they're utilized. So they're ideal for people who don't want to pay capital gains taxes. They want to maintain an investment strategy and they would like some income, uh, but they don't want all the headache of ownership. So what you're doing is you're going to a, a set of, it depends on the funds and, and the sponsors you're dealing with, but generally you're investing into a pool of assets uh, and, and it can be different asset classes. It can be mixed or you can mi pick the type or it can be one property, but you're going into it with uh, other investors. You 1031 into them and you can 1031 out of them. Now they typically want you to stay in them for a amount of time because there's some activity going on like construction or leasing it up or things like that. And you're part of that financing pool, but you are most of the time going to get anywhere from a four to um, 11, 12% return a year uh, just on your money. We're just talking about mailbox money. So if you're somebody that's getting on in years, you don't want to buy more land that, that, that carries a lot of maintenance and headache and taxes and everything else that you got to deal with that comes direct to you. They're a great avenue to keep that investment working without taking the cash, paying the taxes and having it just sit there. Uh, and then again, it's something that you can transfer to your heirs that now they've got a, a revenue stream it's building, but they don't have to turn around and become, you know, farm experts or timberland experts in the process. I was going to say it carries a lot of similarities with an REIT, right? Yeah. 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 I know we're getting it. We're getting to the top of the hour. I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to give you the floor for anything that we haven't covered so far that we should cover for anybody interested in tax strategy. 
I feel well, like we've heard uh, a lot, but I'll see if there yeah, we, we painted with yeah, in here. We we painted with a very broad brush, and yeah. I'm I'm, uh, I'm 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 admittedly one to to chase the rabbit down a hole for as long as you'll let me. So I would just say if you got any more specific questions that I'd be happy to answer for people and, you know, and try to be more specific to their situation. But again, on top of whatever we, they learned today, make sure that you've got a good tax professional behind you to help lock all these things in and make sure nothing's changed from what we've discussed today, because, you know, in today's political world, what, what applies today may not apply next year. So depending on when you listen to this, you just want to make sure that everything's still current. And one last question I wanted to ask you is, is, you know, we're talking about the conversation that you need to have with an, with an accountant and, and not just an accountant. I mean, cause I live in an urban area. If I, the chances of me finding an accountant in my area that understands say the inner workings of a timber operation or, or a ranch is going to be very limited. If I go to an area with a lot of timber, I'm going to have a better chance of meeting an accountant. But the, the key is to vet somebody who has expertise in agriculture, in timber, in in whatever asset class that you're looking at. Your role in the situation is is, you know, you're working with real estate, you know, you're a land real estate agent. But and, and the qualifications, it, like when when people hear real estate, they're thinking, oh, this guy buys and sells houses. No, that's not it. Like you've worked in forestry for, I don't know how many years now came up in that industry. Like you work with land and it's very, very specific to that. Talk a little bit about your role in this and how you act as a consultant and like where we're working with somebody like you and their financial professionals come in as, as an advantage to for people. So if, if we're kind of going to the game, I'm really good at the tee ball. I, I kind of set the ball on the tee and then I let them swing. And so I, I'm there to, make sure that they're aware of these opportunities. You know, some of them, they will apply to them. Some of them won't, some of them they want to do some of them they don't want to do. It's all about, you know, people's appetite for some of these things. Uh, so I just my, primarily I'm there to help and educate and then let them make the decision on how to move forward with that. But again, like I mentioned earlier, most people were coming there to buy it, to buy this land anyway. So what we're doing primarily is cementing that value to them and making sure they understand these strategies that are there for them outside of just, I'm going to let the trees grow, or I'm going to let the crops grow, or I'm going to let appreciation happen. There are other things you can do besides that, that allow those things to still happen, but you can also get a benefit immediately. And you've done this on everything from hundred thousand dollar tracks of land to what's, what's some of the higher value tracks that you've worked with on for, for tax strategy? Uh, that the largest one, I think it was last year, we did a 20 million one. it was, we ended up at 18 million, I think on the purchase price and, uh, was able to procure 46 million in shelter for the buyer. And originally he was not coming in there to buy the whole property. He only wanted to buy about a thousand acres of it. And, but I knew a little bit about his business. I suspect that he was paying a lot of taxes. I asked him if I could, you know, um, explain conservation easements to him, how I thought it might benefit him. I told him that he double checked it with his tax team. They said, he's right. If those numbers work, those numbers did work. He ended up buying 6,000 or yeah, just over 6,000 acres instead of 1,000 acres and paid for the entire property through tax shelter. So, uh, so you, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And I've done it for as little as 10 acres. Uh, you know, so it, it's, you know, a lot of people call me and want to do conservation easements on, um, smaller tracks. I'll say this, they all want to know what's it cost. Uh, you can do them 
technically on anything, uh, but they can get cost prohibitive if they get too small. Cause they're, it's usually you're looking at 25 to 50 grand to get them established. Uh, sometimes a little more depending on how many professionals have to come in like geologists and surveyors and appraisers and things like that. Lawyers, uh, all those things, but that's generally the ballpark that you're, you're looking at. So you got to make sure that your, your tax deduction and those benefits justify the cost of establishment. Right. So I want to give you an opportunity here to tell you, tell anybody listening area that you work specialty, specialties that you work with and, uh, and contact information. Yeah. So I'm, uh, primarily, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, uh, kind of push into Tennessee on occasion personally. Uh, but I can help anybody anywhere in the country. And then you grab somebody on our team to help you there. If it's not me. Perfect. Well, Clint, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to, I want to like give the disclaimer here. This is the second time we had to do this. First time we had an audio air. So Clint has given us double the time in this. So thank you for your generosity in that. And uh, very much appreciated, man. Happy to help. This concludes episode number 78 for the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing tax strategies that can be used on your land with National Land Realty Managing Broker Clint Flowers of Mobile, Alabama. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com.